welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and I'm so glad that you could join me again this week. It's been a couple weeks off. I apologize for that. I was hoping to dive right back into putting out episodes weekly, but once my semester was done, I had a whole host of things I had to catch up on and get done, meeting with supervisors, taking care of uh, some issues with my computer and the Windows system on it, but uh, that's all figured out, hopefully, so we're back on this week. And as we started last time and are finishing up today, uh, the on the agenda right now is the second part of the Q&A on congregational polity. Last time I addressed the first three questions, mostly on titles and offices in the church. So if you're interested in that, how a congregationalist approach, the topic of bishops and priests and that sort of thing, check that out. Link will be in the description to the first part. But now for today's episode, we're diving into the second part of the Q&A where I address three more questions. These ones get a bit more into, I would say, the history of congregational polity, but also uh, it starts with a very practical question. So enough of the intro here. Let's dive in with the first question. I'll read that out and then give you some of my thoughts. The first question is, where do we see in scripture that a church could remove their pastor? This is a fantastic question, a very big conversation. I can just straight up say, uh, if you're part of a Baptist church or a Congregationalist church of some type, it's very likely that in your bylaws or in your statement of faith or whatever you might have, the official documents of the church, that it probably outlines a way that the congregation can remove its pastor, can remove its elders. And that, again, is very much rooted in the congregational view of polity, that essentially churches have accountability within themselves, that pastors and elders and deacons, all the offices of the church, those two, pastor, elders, and deacons, they are elected by the congregation, but they can also be removed by the congregation. So where do we see that in Scripture? And the first bit that we have to make clear and what the, the question assumes, and I believe rightly as a congregationalist, is that churches elect their officers. The first part of that assumes that the election of officers, the raising up of officers, is done by the church. And you can see a clear articulation of that in that historic Baptist document, the Second London uh, Baptist Confession of Faith. If you look at chapter 26, paragraph 9, you'll see that the church raises up its officers, again, pastors slash elders and deacons, by the common suffrage of the church itself. And that just means by the voting of the church. And the Second London pulls on Acts 14.23 to see that about elders. Again, it's a bit finicky with the translations of the Greek, but I'll have the verses on screen if you're watching on YouTube marking that out. And for our deacons, it looks at Acts 6, that famous scene where the church raises up some deacons to deal with very practical issues in the congregation. And there you clearly see that the apostles instruct the congregation to present some of their members to be raised up as deacons, to elect them. So it's clear from the congregationalist perspective, in particular the Baptist perspective where I come from, that elders, deacons are raised up, elected by the congregation. So they're elected by the congregation. Where do we see that the elders, the deacons can be removed by the congregation? So that's a great question, and that's a question that 
we might struggle to find a verse that directly deals with that, that provides direct example or teaching of removing an elder or a pastor from a congregation or the congregation uh, voting to remove them from office, whatever it might be. But in order to get that answer, I think, again, we can look at the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Again, in chapter 26, which is on the church, it has this to say in paragraph 12. As all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches when and where they have opportunity to do so, so all that are admitted unto the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof according to the rule of Christ. What's interesting about this paragraph is that it follows after several paragraphs dealing with the officers of the church. And what that makes clear to me, and I believe clear from the document itself, just in a plain reading, is that elders and deacons, officers of the church, are primarily, first and foremost, members of the church. And like all other members of the church, they are subject to the discipline, to the censures and government of the church itself. So unlike some other denominations where the elders aren't part of the church itself, rather they belong to the higher body or they answer to some higher office than themselves, in a congregationalist setting, elders slash pastors and deacons, they are also members. And like all members, they come under the government of the church. So what does that mean for this question? How can churches remove pastors? What gives them that authority? Or why do we believe that's right? Well, it essentially goes back to that same root. As members of the church, pastors or deacons are also subject to church discipline. So what is church discipline? Where do we get that from? Well, the big passage where people go to talk about church discipline is Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Let me read that out. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained brother, your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Essentially, remove him from the church. He is no longer part of the church. And what that indicates is that like uh, any discipline issue here, it goes through the proper channels. Of course, it starts with that private, hey, you wronged me, or hey, you're doing something wrong. Let's try and fix this. And if that doesn't work, if the person who's offending doesn't listen to you one-on-one, you take two or three more And if he doesn't listen to the two or three more who have established the offenses and refuse to heed their wisdom, their correction, their rebuke, then you take it to the entire church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then the church removes them from the body. They no longer have them as one of their own. They're treated as a Gentile, a tax collector, a foreigner, someone who's outside of the body. That's what we'll often describe as excommunication there. And what the Second London Baptist professed, and what I believe is the answer, how do Baptists or Congregationalist congregations have the authority to remove their pastors or their elders or whatever they call them? Well, it's because they are members of the church and subject to this same 
process of church discipline. If a pastor is doing something wrong, whether that's one of those sins that we think might be common to the church, whether it's adultery, which is an issue churches often have to deal with, whether it's some sort of crime that they've committed, or in the cases of pastors, they're called to certain codes of conduct behaviors to teach the truth, to not be quarrelsome, to correct in gentleness, uh, to... um, be a good ambassador of Jesus Christ, whether they are committing one of those sins anyone could commit or something specific to their responsibilities in the office, if they are failing to do that, the same process is launched. First, it comes alongside the brother, then two or three more, then the church at the end. And if they don't listen to the church, they are subject to discipline, censure, and ultimately removal in the form of excommunication. So, that's a long way of saying the, the passage that Congregationalists will often go to to support the church being able to remove pastors is the same passage that speaks to any other member. It's the same process of church discipline, which could end in removal. One interesting thing to note here is that the Apostle Paul, knowing that pastors, elders, church leaders are often subject to false accusations, people uh, trying to remove them out of pride or jealousy or out of church politics, you know the deal. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that evidence must be established. And to get a better idea of that, we can turn to the passage of 1 Timothy 5, 19-20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who per- persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they might so that the rest might stand in fear. So again, we could see that this passage is working in tandem in the passage we see in Matthew. That it's the same deal. Make sure you have the evidence. Make sure you have the witnesses. And you rebuke them. The goal is rebuke and repentance. But in the end, as we saw in Matthew, it could end in removal. I'll leave a le- uh, an article in the description down below that helps understand how the passage in Matthew on church discipline and how that passage in First Timothy on specifically related to the discipline of elders fit together. But the point is clear. How do congregationalists view themselves, their congregations having the authority to remove pastors, elders, or deacons even, uh, all the offices of the church, those two? Well, it is the same process of church discipline. If the pastor commits a sin and doesn't heed the rebuke and uh, of those who come before him, the one and then the two or three, they are brought to the church. And if they do not heed the church, they can be removed from them. And of course, in the bylaws of different churches, they have different ways of outlining that, of making sure that false accusations uh, won't be uh, hurt or won't be heeded or making sure that it can't be a political decision. You'll often see that it requires a supermajority to affect this sort of discipline. But this is all assuming everything is done in a biblical and godly manner. This is how and why Congregationalists believe the congregations have authority to remove their pastors slash elders. I hope that helps. I hope that answers the question. And if you have any follow-ups, please let me know in the comments down below or send me an email. Reach out to me. Let's move on to the next question. Here we're now moving into the historical side of the questions. 
how would congregational polity have dealt with some of the major heresies of the first eight centuries of church history? In case you don't know or need a refresher, in those first eight centuries of the church, uh, after, well, frankly, during the time of the New Testament onward until 700s, 800s, there are a lot of major heresies and divides in the early church. And those were especially on issues relating to the divinity or person of Jesus Christ and later on the Holy Spirit. Some of the familiar terms you might be aware of are Arianism was a big one, but you also had uh, Sabellianism and Adoptionism, and then some other kinds of heresies, Pelagianism, which dealt with salvation, and Gnosticism, which was just frankly this wild movement that was more sort of a parallel religious movement than a heresy, strictly speaking, at least in my opinion. But the the question comes out of how to deal with those. If you look in church history of what actually went down, the church historically had a very particular way of dealing with heresies that arose within the community, within the brand or the label of Christianity. That was typically through what we now call ecumenical councils. And what would happen is the emperor... In the case of the popular council, people often think of when they think of councils and heresies. In the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine saw the division in the church, and in his case, how it was hurting his empire, and called all the bishops of the church together to work it out and to fix the issue, to come up with a solution. And from that, while the Council of Nicaea dealt with a couple of things, including the date of Easter, and if you look at the canons, how uh, the documents of the council, like it includes some issues related to polity, related to formalities in the church's worship. But the major thing was dealing with Arianism. Was Jesus Christ divine in the true sense, or was he a lesser divine being or creative being or whatever it might be articulated as was he lesser than god himself and the emperor wanted to fix these things and the council was came brought together and they produced that famous document the nicene creed which many churches today still hold and confess dearly and constantly as a basic expression of christian trinitarian belief well, that was the way historically it was done, through the emperor calling the bishops together and then them formulating this Nicene Creed. But how would Congregationalists do that? And the question comes out of, I believe, the, the impression or the understanding that Congregationalists wouldn't have had the mechanism to call together a universal council to respond to this issue. And I will say here that I think even more interestingly than that, it is the issue of uh, the relationship between church and state. As a Baptistic Congregationalist, I don't believe that the Emperor, or in my case, the Queen of England, or which is also the Queen of Canada, my Queen, or the Prime Minister of Canada has the authority to call the church together to figure out a theological issue. I believe that church and state are separate on those matters, and I think that warrants its own episode in the near future, but I'll put a note there, that would be a major distinction. But how would the church itself figure out these issues? What might it look like? And to get an idea of that, I think we need to go a few centuries back and we need to go to the apostolic example of how to deal with a major theological division in the church. And to get a clear example of that, we might go to Acts 15 and the Council of Jerusalem. 
For those who might not know the context, in the early church, there was a big question of how Jewish Christians and the increasing numbers of Gentile Christians would relate to each other and be a part of one community. And there was a group that we've come to know as the Judaizers. You could see Paul, the apostle, combating their heresy in Galatians. But there were a lot of questions of would Christians need to be circumcised, even Gentile ones? Would they need to keep the Jewish laws that the Jewish Christians were keeping? And how would they fit all together? And how would they respond to that? And it was a major question because, as you could see throughout the New Testament, the church was being divided over how Jews and Gentiles would live and worship God together? Could they? Could they do that? Would Gentile Christians essentially have to become Jews in order to be justified, in order to be rightly considered part of the church? That was a major thing, a major division in the church in the early centuries of Christianity. And I believe in Acts 15, we get a clear way of how the church responded to that in the New Testament canon. And here's a few of the highlights from Acts 15. Well, Acts 15, verses 1 to 2, opened by saying the following. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the Judaizing heresy. And after, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So essentially, there was a major issue in Antioch, and it spread to other churches. It was all over the church. Would Christians need to be circumcised to be justified? A major question about salvation, and frankly, a major heresy, saying that works are required for salvation, that works justified. So that was exploding in Antioch, and it was exploding across the Christian world. So what did they do? Well, the church in Antioch, the hot spot of this heresy that needed to be combated by the church, they sent representatives to the church in Jerusalem, the mother church at the time, where most of the apostles were located, the birthplace of Christianity. And so what happened there? Well, let's read on in Acts 15, verse 6. In Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So essentially, they were received by the church as we could see if you read back the entire chapter, and the apostles and elders, the leaders of the church, gathered together to work through this issue, to understand the theological implications, and then set people down the right path. And that's what we see in verse 22. I'll read that. This is after their discussion and coming to the conclusion, they write, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church, to choose men from among them, to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And this is that famous letter where they set the church down the right path. Interesting note, uh, thing to note here is that it was the apostles, the elders, with the whole church doing this. So it was a communal church activity to take care of this church in strife, to come up with the solution, and then send them down the right path. And here, I think it's interesting to note, this is how the early church, the earliest church, the apostolic church, responded to heresy. This sounds very familiar to what we see in John Cotton's writing on synods. Again, John Cotton, we had a couple episodes on him, a few episodes on his famous work, The Keys of the Kingdom. Here's what he has to say about synods. 
synods being the gathering of churches in response to great needs of the church itself. He writes this, It may so fall out that the state of all the churches in the country may be corrupted and beginning to discern their corruption, may desire the concurse and counsel of one another for a speedy and safe and general reformation. Again, that's in the archaic language of John Cotton. But his point is that the church as a whole might perceive in itself that there is a major issue, a major corruption, maybe, maybe a heresy going on. And the church may choose to gather together to have a general reformation, to identify the issue, to think about the issue biblically, and to set themselves down the right path. And that is a synod in John Cotton's congregational understanding of church government. So, what might it look like if congregationalism was the polity of the church during those first eight centuries? Again, uh, that's a big question. I believe congregational polity is what the apostles laid out in the New Testament, but over the first few centuries it shifted to episcopal polity. But I believe that the primitive polity of the church, congregational polity, would be well equipped to deal with the heresy of the first eight centuries. The big question would be, how do they do that without the emperor? Again, we'll need an episode on the separation of church and state and what that would look like. But here I see that congregationalism is well equipped and has many mechanisms of dealing with issues beyond the local congregation. Whether that's through a standing association, again, that's huge for Baptists. We love traditionally our association. The Second London Baptist Confession has a statement on associations. If you're watching on YouTube, I'll put that up on the screen briefly. But also, according to John Cotton, there are the synods that we mentioned, the synods that can meet, that could hash out these heresies, that could gather essentially as the ecumenical councils of the day and lay out the path to move forward. And that, I believe, is the big thing that people need to encounter and perhaps congregationalists need to reimagine. While John Cotton might have a higher view of synods than most today, there are still plenty of ways for Baptist churches, congregationalist churches to gather together on a national or even an international scale to work towards their general reformation. Whether that's to lay out new teaching or to combat a heresy like was common in the first centuries of the church. Anyway... I hope that answers the question, how might have congregationalism dealt with those early heresies while well, they would have gathered together without the beckoning of the emperor to do what we see in Acts 15, to work through the issue and for the church as a whole to perhaps write a letter to set their brother and sister churches down the right path. Again, that might seem like, oh, I didn't know congregationalists could do that or have done that, but I encourage you, as will come up in the next question, Baptists especially have a long history of churches meeting together, sending representatives, and combating heresies on a scale larger than the local churches themselves. So while congregationalism is rooted in the congregations, in the local churches, there are established mechanisms for churches to work together in associations and in times of dire need through synods. Anyway, big question. If you're interested in that, check out the episode on John Cotton's view of synods. I'll leave a link to that in the description to hear a little bit more with, of course, uh, the invitation to read his writing for yourself uh, if you're really interested. He has a lot more to say than I summarize in that episode. Anyway, let's move on to the last question. How did mainline denominations end up where they are despite their confessions and structure? 
So this question comes from a friend of mine, and I think it's a, an invitation to have a congregationalist critique of uh, other polities, where if you look out on the North American landscape today at what evangelicals will perceive as the most uh, liberal church bodies today, those that are teeter-tottering on apostasy if, ha- if they have not already apostatized, and of course, without making too big of a deal or a statement today, you already are familiar, most likely, that evangelical denominations will look at the churches such as the Episcopal Church or the Presbyterian Church USA or the Methodist Church in America and say, oh, wow, they have gone off the path. They have gone astray into theological liberalism, into progressive ideology, and have abandoned what we would consider many of the the fundamentals of the faith, to use that charge term. But uh, I won't make too big of a deal of that. You know what I'm talking about. You can look that up yourself. But how did those churches, which uh, it, by all accounts were once orthodox, theologically robust, or even evangelical church bodies, especially in the case of the Methodists who spawned out of the evangelical movement, how did they go from robust evangelical bodies believing the fundamentals of the Christian faith to where they are today, rife with theological liberalism and other issues? How did they go there with their grand structures, which are supposed to provide accountability with confessional documents and bishops and presbyteries? How did they get from where they were two to 300 years ago to where they are today with numbers declining, with theological orthodoxy being a minority or whatever else you might say? Well, the first thing I want to say in response to that is that polity, uh, there is no polity that makes us immune to sin. It doesn't matter what polity you have, ranging from Episcopal all the way to Congregational, that will prevent human sin from being what human sin is, completely infectious and getting in the way of the truth. And that's why I will concede that there are plenty of Congregational denominations that have gone liberal themselves. It's not a problem exclusive to other polity forms. I'll leave a video that unpacks how Puritan New England, how the Puritan Congregationalists went from robust Puritan bodies to where they are today as one of the most liberal denominations in the United Churches of Christ in the United States. So check out that video down below. But here's what I will say. This is where we see the importance of training up a new generation all the time. And I believe that's where congregationalism flourishes. In the wider denominations that have great and grand structures, I think it's easy to become complacent with your documents, complacent with your theological structures. You'll assume, oh, the bishops will always preserve our orthodoxy. Oh, the confessions will always preserve our orthodoxy. But as history has shown time and time again, a single generation can really upturn up, that. A single bishop can really send a, an entire dom- denomination down the wrong path. A classic example of this, and I'll again, I'll have a resource, a podcast that unpacks this history a bit more. You can look at English Presbyterianism in the 18th or the 17th and 18th century, where it essentially went from the robust body that produced the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, those great Puritan uh, documents that many people look at today. Well, the church in England that produced those in a couple generations went from theologically robust and rich and Puritan to Unitarian. They totally declined where English Presbyterianism became Unitarianism. How did that happen? Well, a lot of people lay the blame at a single generation under Richard Baxter, 
Richard Baxter, who by and large was great and fantastic as a theologian. He has, of course, some issues that Baptists were addressing on justification, but he also had a biblicist streak. He didn't like a lot of the language in the confessions and choose, uh, chose to ignore it. And eventually, as he only sought to use biblical language, the following generation determined that, hey, there's no Trinity in the Bible. Jesus is never directly addressed as divine, the Holy Spirit, who knows? And eventually that resulted in Unitarianism. In England, during that time, the 17th and 18th century, a lot of the denominations, Anglicans, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, were struggling with Unitarianism as rationalism was on the rise, with the Enlightenment and all those philosophical movements and thoughts. It's interesting to note that it was the particular Baptists who were the main body remaining strong during this time, and that was largely due to the influence of John Gill. And it's interesting, again, to note that it was the Baptistic Congregationalists, despite not having higher structures which were supposed to preserve theological orthodoxy, they were the ones in their Congregationalist practice who were maintaining orthodox. Again, John Gill was one of the main figures defending orthodox Trinitarian thought. What do I think is going on there? Well, frankly, a lot of that is up to God, blessing and regenerating as he pleases. But I think the matter is that Baptists, in our congregationalist scheme, are forced to, in a lot of ways, be more diligent about raising up the next generation. We are forced to think more critically about who we invite into membership, about who we will offer the ordinances to, about who will we, we will give teaching positions. Because ultimately, it is the church, the local congregationalism, the people actually in the pew, who are ultimately responsible for guarding their orthodoxy with, of course, the elders taking the lead, the elders being given certain keys of authority. But ultimately, it's the congregation which has to seek to defend and not only defend, but also promote itself to propagate the gospel, to defend the truth, to teach the truth. So I do think, in addition to congregationalist polity being, and of course, this is my profession as a Baptist, as being congregational polity as being objectively what the New Testament teaches for churches, I also believe that congregational polity, practically speaking, encourages the proper patterns of raising up the next generation in the pews, rather than relying on confessional documents, which are good and well, rather on relying on denominational structures, which truly depend on certain individuals staying strong or going astray. Congregationalists are forced to think about the whole, to care about the whole, and to actually care about the people sitting in the pew who are the church themselves. Anyway, that's an abstract question. I could dive in a lot more on the history, but I'll leave those resources down below on the Congregationalists in New England, on Richard Baxter, and I will leave a, maybe a little episode from someone on John Gill, just so you can get familiar with who he is, but that's a figure we'll return to on this channel in the near future. Anyway, I hope that uh, my answers have either given you the answers you were looking for or interested to hear or have promoted further thought and study. Again, I don't expect that my brief answers now will exhaust your, uh, your entire plethora of questions that you might have about congregationalism. But again, truly, 
As much as this episode was meant to give answers, it is also meant to encourage conversation between ourselves. So please, if you have any follow-up questions, further questions, reach out to me where you can find me. YouTube comments are great. Emails, reaching out to me on Facebook or Discord if you have me there. That is also fantastic. And while I might not have another Q&A episode, I really would love to continue the conversation. Anyway, that's it for now. This was a bit of a longer Q&A, but I hope you found it interesting. Next time, I really hope to have that interview with a Lutheran who is also a proponent of congregational polity to hear what they have to say about congregationalism. But that will be for next time here on Christian's Colloquy. Until then, take care.